Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Sawcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we approach the crazy few days towards the end of the financial year. We crank up the doors and ask, is this the end? The end of the business interruption saga? Is this the end of common sense around climate change and insurers' rights to choose what risks they will cover? And finally, this will be the end of my doors infatuation. But are we going to see the end of the local insurance broker now the internationals are moving in? Hello, everyone. On the panel today are publisher Terry McMullen and managing editor John Deeks. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. What have you done with Wendy? Wendy's on holiday in Queensland, so I hope she comes back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a convenient excuse. Hello, John. Morning. What will you be glad to see the end of, John? I'm very glad to see the end of England's football team's inability to be a decent rival, including specifically Germany. So I'm delighted to see the end of that particular hoodoo. And by this time the podcast comes out, they'll probably have lost to the Ukraine. So on to the key stories from this week's bulletin. So a legal process that began almost a year ago has ended, with the insurance industry denied leave of appeal for the first test case ruling. John, what does this mean? I mean, will businesses get claims paid now? Well, so as we all know by now, this first test case related to pandemic exclusions in BI cover that referenced the now repealed Quarantine Act. The New South Wales Court of Appeal last year ruled that insurers can't rely on these exclusions to deny claims. But ICA sought leave to appeal. The High Court agreed to hear their arguments, but on Friday confirmed that leave to appeal was denied. And as it's the highest court in the land, there's nowhere else ICA can go with this. So definitely lost on that point. The trouble is there are still other wordings that need legal clarification. And that's what the second test case is all about. It's understood there are only a very small number of claims that were hanging exclusively on the Quarantine Act issue. So ICA says that most businesses will have to wait for the conclusion of the second test case, which will be heard in the federal court in September. It's going to have to reach the end of that process before most claims can be finalised, unfortunately. So your question as to will claims be paid now, the answer is for most people, no. And of course, As a result of that, some lawyers who are pushing to launch class actions on this issue are saying that any further delay is just another example of the industry doing everything it can to avoid paying legitimate claims and so on and so forth. Well, Terry, this is a delicate balancing act for insurers, isn't it? They need to be seen to respond to the ruling, but at the same time, they probably can't do a lot until this second test case that John mentioned is completed. Yeah, I I think they're displaying a fine sense of balance right now. They're they're urging people to put their claims in while at the same time they're seeking clarity from the courts. Uh, And look, it's the best they can do in the circumstances. If they do lose the, the second lot of appeal in the high court, they'll probably move as quickly as possible to get it behind them. But I think the reckoning will come later in the year because some boards and shareholders are going to be very, very angry about all this. Insurers appeared before the Standing Committee on Economics on Friday. Last time this happened, John, we wrote about how uninformed the MPs were. Were their questions any better this time around? Yes, probably a little bit. At least they didn't keep asking general insurers about life insurance this time. But there were still plenty of misunderstandings and slightly off-the-wall questions. It seemed to me that Every politician had a pet issue, whether that was vermin exclusions or rising motor premiums 
or ransomware payments. And while those things are worthy of discussion, uh, they seemed a little bit like fringe issues to me when time was so limited on the day. And when heavyweight topics were tackled, such as the business interruption claims or the government's cyclone reinsurance pool, I think the MPs failed to cut through to the the core of the issues. I'd have liked to see them ask insurers why, if paying out pandemic claims has the potential to bankrupt the industry, greater care wasn't taken with policy wordings. Also, why they're suddenly backing the reinsurance pool when for a decade most of them have been fighting tooth and nail against the idea. And don't forget, the whole point of this committee is to keep an eye on the response to the Hain Royal Commission. There was very little discussion of how insurers are implementing some very significant regulatory changes. Overall, I felt the MPs were pretty hostile, but lacked the industry knowledge to really put insurers on the spot. And they might be better off next time using the opportunity to gain a better understanding of how the industry works rather than trying to trip insurers up at every turn. The insurance executives dealt with it all pretty well, I thought. Well, unfortunately, Wendy's not here and I'd love her to ask her this, but over to you, Terry. Do you think these appearances are worthwhile or is it all about grandstanding politicians? Well, are they worthwhile? They should be. (laughs) Um, I've been involved in in previous inquiries outside the insurance industry where where MPs had a real grasp of the issues. Is there too much grandstanding? Absolutely. Look, last week's committee hearing with the insurance industry covered a lot of ground, and it's always disappointing to see how the questions lack any real integrity or deep understanding or even interest and the detail of issues. There's way too much attempts to get executives to talk about political issues, uh, which is not, not what they're there for. In the past, the insurers have just responded as best they could to stray questions. But on Friday, it was good to see the Insurance Council's Andrew Hall doing some grandstanding of his own and getting across some very important points like about the cost of natural disasters. He was presumably recruited for his high-level political skills, so it was good to see the industry on the front foot and returning some bounces for a change. While we're on the issue of grandstanding, the debate strayed into the issue of climate change, didn't it? And on the same day, there was a separate hearing about insurers' lack of support for exporting industries, including coal mining. Yes, that's right. Deputy Chair Andrew Lee, who's a Labour MP, was keen to get... IAG and Suncorp to commit to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Uh, Suncorp's Lisa Harrison made the mistake at first of saying that they were supportive as a company of government action around climate change, to which Dr Lee delighted in telling her that the federal government had not committed to net zero by 2050. Uh, Have a listen to this clip. Uh, Does Suncorp support Australia reaching a target of net zero emissions by 2050? So Suncorp uh, is supportive of the government action that they're taking around climate change and uh, positive action. So that's a no then. Given that the government is not committed to net zero emissions by 2050, you're saying Suncorp is not? No, there is some work that government is undertaking um, around climate change um, and we support positive action uh, in regards to reducing emissions. So even although the Business Council of Australia, the biggest bank, the biggest miner, the biggest uh, uh, airline in Australia, every state and territory government is committed to net zero by 2050, Suncorp, an insurer whose bottom line is adversely affected by climate change, 
hasn't signed on to net zero by 2050? Uh, no, we have. You have? You just, you just told yeah. me you were supportive of what the government was doing, you're, you're doing and the federal government is not signed on to net zero by 2050. So I'm asking you the straightforward question, has Suncorp committed to, uh, to, to, to the Australia meeting the target of net zero yes. emissions by 2050? Uh, apologies, um, Deputy Chair. Um, so Suncorp has committed to that. Right. Uh, oh. And uh, apologies, my, my comments were uh, to say any positive action that governments are taking around reducing the impact on the climate, we see as a positive. Sure, but uh, if, you, if you're in the space of, uh, of anything is good, then you can be in the space that the Prime Minister is in of saying that he would like to one day aspire to net zero by 2050. That's different from the, the firm targets that states and territories have committed to. So you get a good feel for the general tone there. And those questions enraged Committee Chair Tim Wilson, a Liberal, who made the point that it, it, it's global emissions, not just Australian emissions, that are causing severe weather trends to deteriorate. And therefore, we should dismiss Dr Lee's rubbish questions, as he called them. There, there is a certain irony there. Insurers were being encouraged, as you say, to push for greater emissions reductions, while in another parliamentary hearing on the same day, they were being attacked for pulling back from coal mining and other related industries. The Joint Standing Committee on Trade and Investment Growth Inquiry into the prudential regulation of investment in Australia's export industries was told insurers are unfairly discriminating against that sector. If there was any audio in eye rolls, I think our listeners would be deafened. Insurers are between a rock and a hard place on fossil fuels, aren't they, Terry? I mean, climate change threaten their business model but they also don't want to make enemies of entire industries or political parties. Yeah, I don't think the insurance industry is all that frightened of the polys anymore. <laughs> and really climate change issues. Speaking as a one-time lobbyist for the oil and gas industry, um, I have to ask why should one industry be forced to provide services to another industry whose activities pose an existential threat to humanity and even more importantly, insurance? The reason why insurers globally are moving away from the fossil fuels industry, well, there's lots of them, but, but it's basically because oil, gas, and especially coal are leading contributors to climate change, which threatens insurers' ability to, uh, to insure. That said, the low risk appetite of insurers at present has resulted in an uncomfortably high number of refusals of cover, high premiums, tough wordings, high levels of so-called self-insurance. But... You know, this is a real-time market reality and it shouldn't be confused with insurers' resistance to covering coal companies and associated companies. They're two different things. John, while we're on politics, submissions have started flowing through for Treasury's consultation on the reinsurance pool. They have, but despite the deadline for submissions passing more than 10 days ago, Treasury has yet to publish them. So we've only seen submissions published individually by the organisations themselves. That doesn't yet include ICA or NEBA, although NEBA released a summary which was fairly strong. It says it's vital to understand what insurers want in order to coax them back into the North Queensland market. And if this doesn't happen, the pool may well fail to bring about greater choice of affordable cover. ICA let slip in the parliamentary hearings that it thinks the pool must have an end date. But then RACQ released a summary of its submission, which said the opposite. RACQ also believes the pool should be extended to cover all natural perils across the whole country. 
we're starting to get a feeling for how the industry thinks about some of the key questions in the consultation but we need to see all the submissions to get the full picture. Well, fortunately, as we've um, said, it's not like they've got a uh, tight deadline to do any of this, have they? Terry, shouldn't the process be a little more transparent for something of this magnitude? Oh, look, hopefully it'll become more transparent once they have an idea where all this is going. Right now, it's a bit of a schmozzle. The Federal Treasury got the job of designing it, but, but first, there's a whole lot of those interested parties from outside insurance who's, I guess, their views and, and demands have to be assessed. So fair enough if the bureaucrats want to understand those views first and sift through a lot of opinions, most of them, or many of them, let me be kind, uh, of which are absolutely not going to go anywhere near the way a pool gets set up. Look, unfortunately, at this stage, at least, it's not going to be a case of the industry getting together with Treasury to design a solution that'll work. There's going to need to be a lot of navigation around some of the linear ideas. The industry isn't going to be the captain of the ship, but they better make sure that the chief engineer is them working below decks to make this thing as good as it can be. Well, leaving politics aside, the broking sector is changing fast at the moment, and Howden has been accelerating its efforts in the local market, hasn't it, Terry? Yeah, we've been following Howden's move into the Australian broking market for, um, oh, since well before March. And it is interesting because of the, the fact that, that internationals are getting involved in different ways in the, the Australian market. Howden's recruited all five of its senior management team from Marsh, right from the, the chairman down to its senior managers, uh, which says something. Previous experience has shown that when a, a large specialist broker like JLT gets swallowed up by a dominant giant like Marsh, it's inevitable you're going to get leakages of talented people who see opportunities elsewhere outside a, a very large organisation. And I'm sure that's what David Howden back in London, where he saw an opportunity. Matt Bacon is keen to play that specialist broking game across the Australian market, corporate, mid-market and SME, with some very experienced specialist managers and Howden's global weight behind him. So it's going to be really interesting to watch how they go as they build a national footprint. John, why do you think we're seeing so many international brokers pitching up in Australia? I mean, it's probably to do with how well Australian broking is going right now. Uh, they're not just surviving uh, the pandemic, but um, they're thriving. There's also a constant stream of potential acquisition targets as a generation of broking principles look for a retirement option. And the consolidation at the top end of town seems to have freed up some senior members of staff. I guess it's a mixture of things which makes Australian broking look like a, a very attractive opportunity right now. Right. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Inside Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Terry O'Gamullen and John Deeks. Wendy, if you're out there, we miss you. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, on all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week. Listener.